Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Today on the program, my oldest friend in academia, the first academic that I became friends with years ago when I started trying to put together um, ideas like this podcast and other things. Uh, this is, uh, he's been a very good friend uh, to me and he's a very entertaining guy um, to be around. And so this was just a fun episode. Enjoy. Peter McGraw. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hi everybody, this is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast and I'm here with my good friend Peter McGraw. Um, who is a uh, behavioral economist at the University of Colorado Boulder, and we met. Um, where did we meet? Pete? We met um, years ago. We were just talking about this last night. I'm staying at Peter's house right now, um, his lovely house in Boulder, where everyone should live. Why? Why is this place a secret? How long have you been here? Ten years. Ten years. Um, so. So how I met Peter was he is um, uh, the author of a book, Humor Code, which is fantastic and everyone should check out. I met him at, while he was in the process of writing this book. I um, started getting interested in science and trying to put together some sciency ideas <laughs> into, <laughs> into my comments. <laughs> this is how you talk. This is how scientists talk, right? So I have some sciency ideas for all of you. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I reached out to a couple of um, authors that I liked. And one of them was like, I, I do some humor research. You should talk to a colleague of mine who then I reached out to, and I was like, hey, do you need help with anything? I'm going to this comedy festival. I could 
hand out surveys for you or something just to get in this person's good graces. And um, and then they're like, actually, colleague of mine is going to be in Portland at Bridgetown Comedy Festival, which is my favorite comedy festival. Mine too. In the country. How many comedy festivals have you been to now? <sighs> Three. <laughs> which which other ones have you been to? South by Southwest, right? Uh, oh, four then. South by Southwest. There's one out in South by Southwest is a fun one. It's very good. I've been, all of the ones I've been to are good. No, I've been to five. I've been to High Plains down in Denver, like uh, that one. Uh, one out in L.A. I want to say it has like Riot Riot L.A. Riot L.A. I think that's the name of it. Yeah, that is. I, I and then um, Just for Laughs. I'd say maybe Just for Laughs is my favorite just because it's... I said in this country. Oh, in this just country. Just for Laughs is in Montreal. It yeah, is. That, that's uh, the big, um, grand one. You should go to Edinburgh sometime. And it's um, on the list. It's uh, you know, horrific com- as a performer, in my opinion. But um, Oh, no. I've been to the... Well, I've been to the Melbourne one also. So, again, not in the United States. Oh, right. Melbourne, but, Australia. I haven't done that. I've done Sydney. Um, so we met in Portland yes. three years ago, did we decide? Yes, that's I right. I was still drinking at the time. I didn't know I didn't know that, at, that you were there. But yeah, you. I just thought you always looked disheveled and kind of <laughs> beat up. I, I haven't made any improvement <laughs> at all. Um, and, uh, and we met for lunch and... Um, I remember we were talking about um, the trolley experiment. Oh, yeah. I just published that paper finally. Oh, what was your uh, paper? Tell, tell the listeners about the trolley experiment and the paper that you published, and then I'll tell them um, oh, the your joke, joke that we, and we hit it I still on. have to, yeah, I still have to publish that joke. I have a clip of it. Maybe, maybe I'll put it on my, uh, oh, my site. That's, not, that's a good idea. We should do that. Yeah. So are you, for, before we get into this, are you sure about this here we are title for this? Podcast? No, I'm not. Do you have a better idea? Well, I think sciency should be in- uh, <laughs> should be Sciency is a really funny idea for a title. You just call it sciency. Yeah, I haven't published them yet. I could call it sciency is really funny. Welcome to Sciency Podcast. <laughs> I'm Shane Moss, make getting sciency with you today. Uh, well, a sciency person, it could work. Um, oh yes. <laughs> See, this is why I like you. You you help me with my career. You give me a lot of great ideas, and we'll we'll get into the the comedy coach that you are. You have all these wonderful ideas. I know it's really terrible because I find myself volunteering advice. You should be selling ideas like sciency. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do get do this sometimes, like with comics, because I think I know something now. Where I just I can I feel like I can see the way for them better than they can. Right. And then I I give them advice, and then they just resent me for it. I, I feel that way a lot. Should I don't know if we should just jump right into this, or if we should get your backstory. Are you sick of telling your backstory? Or no, no, you I'm happy. Um, so. Uh, trolley experiment. Yeah, so th- so this is a nice, so this is a good intro as to like the kind of person I sort of was and 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 was sort of drifting away from. So I was doing research in judgment, emotion, and choice, and one of the major areas that I was doing work in was on what makes things wrong. So moral psychology, basically, and uh, I had been kicking around this idea. With, I have a lab group 
called the Moral Research Lab. And uh, one day we got talking about these trolley experiments. So um, if you're not familiar with the trolley experiment, it's a, it started out as a philosophical exercise, a thought experiment that, that showed essentially that you can't trade lives um, as easily as you, as you might think. So there's sort of two versions of the trolley experiment. Do you want to tell the joke that you have? Do you have a, do you have a trolley experiment joke? Yeah, no, give the, uh, give the two versions. Um, so one is called the switch track version, and basically there's a trolley hurtling down uh, the tracks, and uh, you, you witness that it's about to hit five workers who are working on these tracks. They don't see it coming, and they're all going to be killed. You're sure of this. But if you, you just happen to be standing next to this switch, that if you pull the lever, it will switch the tracks over uh, to another path. There happens to be one worker there, unbeknownst to him. If you switch the track, he's going to, to be killed by this trolley. And the, and the answer, the question is, would you, is it morally permissible to switch the tracks? And most people say yes to this. You're saving four lives. Saving four lives. Fairly easy decision. The, um, these philosophers who, who've kind of went back and forth about this, there's, a, there's another version of this, uh, of this in which they're, uh, it's called the bystander version. And in this one, same situation. Trolley's going to hit these five workers. You happen to be on a footbridge. Maybe they call it the footbridge version as the other term. And uh, there happens to be a very large man standing on the footbridge. Some people call it a fat man. Because you yourself aren't heavy enough to sacrifice yourself and throw yourself over. Yes. However, there is a large man. (laughs) And if you give him a little push, he will fall down in front of the trolley. He's so big that it will stop the trolley, but kill him in the process. Same question, is it morally permissible to do that? And, and the majority of people switch. They say, no, it's not okay to do that. And so it opens up all these kind of philosophical and psychological questions and the queries. The math is the so same, on. but people's reaction to it is different. Yes, yeah, so people tend to get upset with that idea and, and their, their emotions help guide their choices and so on. Even though rationally... You're still saving four lives. And, my, and my, the joke that I made regarding this trolley experiment was um, someone, someone says to me, hypothetical question, Jane, there's a fat man standing on a bridge. Would you push him over if... And I'm like, yes! <laughs> that, was, that was my, uh, my big joke. Turns out that makes me a rational, logical person. I, yeah, I wonder also, how many lives I have saved from all of the fat people that I pushed off of bridges not even knowing. Well, so your, your joke is, is um, it's not your best joke. No, I but, was just like, I've never used it on stage or anything. It was just one of those conversation. It's a good um, science joke, yeah. I think. But, but, it, but it highlights what, what we ended up doing with this paper which was pointing out that um, this is really not the best experimental stimuli to use um, for a number of reasons. So in the technical term, as we say, it lacks external validity. So it doesn't really map onto the real world very much. So most moral dilemmas don't involve sacrificing people's lives. And um, most, um, most kind of dilemmas of this sort, or sort of moral dilemmas, 
um, are sort of more grounded in reality. So the fact that people make jokes and laugh, so that's one of the things we show in the papers that people laugh at and are amused by the, the footbridge version of this. People think it's absurd that you right. would push a large stranger in front of a, a trolley and so on. So, so we were working on this paper back then when I met you. I just finally got it published. It took years because all the trolleyologists who reviewed the paper just hated it. And, and <laughs> I want to be a trolleyologist. Um, that's, uh, that's incredible. That's the difference. Well, there's many differences. I mean, you've probably noticed there's some parallels between academia and, um, and comedy. Um, this is one of the major differences where I work on something. I have an idea. I can go out that night try out the thing that I've worked on, the idea that I have, and maybe do a little trial and error over the course of a few shows, and then I can kind of uh, quote-unquote publish it or you know, get it on television in a month's time or, or something like that. It might be ready to go. You've been working on this um, trolley paper since the entire time that I've known you. And it's not even barely what you do anymore. No, yeah, by that time, by the time it got published, I've already sort of, the moral psychology work sort of in the rearview mirror. I'm not starting any new projects on that, on that area. Now I'm, I'm studying what makes things funny. I have a lab called the Humor Research Lab. And, uh, and I'm spending, I mean, 90% of my time as an academic. And this is why we met. You were do, doing sciencey. Um, things see, trying yeah. to get into uh, um, funny things, and uh, I'm trying to think of a parallel um, comedy-ish things. And then I was doing comedy-ish things, trying to get into sciencey stuff. And that's yeah. how we it was did. love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I quit, before I wanted to, uh, before we go into all of your work because we will spend um, the rest of the time talking about that. I was curious because your um, your, uh, I'm in your home and you're like organized and have clearly have your life together. <laughs> and um, I've never sorted out how to do that myself. Of course, I'm 34. You have I'm some 44 on me. I have 10 years. Um, I, I was curious, and, and if this is too personal, we can edit it out or, or you don't have to talk about it. But do you, uh, you got into behavioral economics do you feel like your upbringing had an influence on why you got into um, like the behavioral aspect of economics? Because you come from, I just know you a little more. Than sure, it's in the book. It's not that. Oh, right. So you come from a fairly a poor family, right? Yeah. Could you talk about? Sure, sure. Family? Yeah, so I um, so this is something that, that people want to attach to you, Peter. <laughs> I, I'm in, you know me. I'm into like these big grand ideas uh -huh. and like learning about like broadly human nature and stuff. And and then um, you know, I send out podcasts and get notes from people. That, I want to know more about that guest. I want to know more about them. So tell. Uh, so we want to know about you. Hear my sob story, my yeah, sad, yeah. my sad childhood story. So I um. No, I think it's actually useful because there's a lot of times like, you know, these kind of academic types, they, they seem, they can seem like un, what's the right word? Like just so different, right? It's just such a different world living in the ivory tower and doing all this kind of stuff. But I, I have actually a fairly pedestrian background. Like not everybody in my family goes to college. No one goes to graduate school. 
Um, so I was raised by a single mother um, with a sister in like a suburban town, sort of kind of working class town in South Jersey. It's it's even worse now <laughs> kind of thing. But I, um, you know, it wasn't always like, it was a tough, it was, you know, it was a tough upbringing. Like my mom was kind of a difficult woman. She loved us a lot and did a lot for us, but she didn't make it easy. Um, and uh, I just think that it was sort of, there was kind of two things that, that happened that I, I kind of did to, to deal with it. So one was to try to under, try to figure this stuff out. Like, so I was kind of a good student and ended up taking a psychology class as a high school student. This was like a rare opportunity to be able to do this. And I just really resonated with getting an idea and understanding of what makes people tick. And, and I actually went to, to college as a engineering major because that's how you get a good job. You know, when you grow up poor, like you're like, well, how do I find a good job? And then I quickly switched out to the psychology just because it just, it was just so fascinating to me. And then like the sort of tidiness thing w- was a little bit of a reaction to just like you live in, you grow up in kind of a chaotic world. And, you know, even, even my life now has a lot of moving parts, you know, between all the academic work and all this sort of outward facing stuff and writing books and doing talks and all this stuff that as a way to just sort of deal with all those things, I just kind of find that it's a lot easier if I keep my life very, very simple, very clean, organized. It's just funny to me because my upbringing and, and uh, I mean, this isn't saying anything about how everyone turns out but um, my upbringing was my mom is like an obsessive compulsive neat freak oh okay and and then and my dad is like very um fiscally conservative always saving and never wasting money and always had you know something stored away i i we, we were never wealthy or anything by any stretch and in fact we were probably lower mint income for a little while but my dad was just so good He's with good money yeah. and and then uh and then they have me and, <laughs> and do their best to instill all of these values and you saw my car um i wanted to i wanted to help you clean your car <laughs> i know you did i offered actually to help uh and it's it's a car of a road comedian and um and and, and so here i you know i'm I'm a messy guy. I, I know I'm messy. I love being in hotels and making a mess and not cleaning up after myself. It's driven I every one of my maids. girls. I do. Um, <laughs> I, I've driven every one of my um, girlfriends insane with how messy I am. And, um, and also, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm better now, but I've spent a lifetime being exceptionally fiscally irresponsible. <laughs> and... Um, and, and like needlessly, just like, oh, here's a bill that's I could easily pay, but I don't want to think about that. So I'm just going to throw that in the garbage. Like that was a lot of my twenties. Was then just like late fees. What? How did this happen? Um, that's so, so that's so interesting because like for me, I've had the opposite. So um, like I kind of so I you know I basically decided that I was going to become a professor before I even really knew exactly what went into it all. And then I just, which is 
also involves lots of freedom and lots of getting to um, hang out on a Monday and not not have to do a podcast if you feel like it. Yeah, that's right. You do. So if you want to pursue autonomy, it's get good at being an academic and then you can do a lot of things on your own. You have a lot of work, but you do it on your own schedule in your own way and, and so on. Didn't mean to cut you off. Though. Oh, no, that's fine. I um, I sort of decided I was going to do this, and then just once I got it in my head that that's what I was going to do, it, I just started executing that plan. And it took me years to do. It took me three tries to get into graduate school, actually. Really? It, yeah, I'm always curious what the process because I didn't go to college, and I mean, I never tried in school. I was like a C student who would just like ace tests and never do homework and just never tried or cared or I I mean I wanted to be like you wanted to be a professor I wanted to be a comedian yeah so then I never and I never told anyone and so I didn't see where education could help me and and um, I know what's interesting about you Shane is that you're you're like you're a much better student than than most of my students (laughs) well you're you're constantly but you're constantly doing these online courses and these podcasts and reading these books and um you know, it's like sort of a new model. You're, you're kind of an example of this sort of new model of a way that you can teach yourself the exact things that you need to teach yourself without ever having to go to college. I mean, I was just talking about this with uh, Ori on on uh, my my second podcast, the neuroscientist who scanned my brain while I made the funnies, and and he was saying the same sort of thing. I mean, we are talking about some of these online classes. We were just talking earlier this morning. I mean, I took an online class with. Um, that Dan Ariely mm-hmm. uh, taught on Coursera, who's like one of the top guys. Out. I mean, if you're at any regular old college, there's no way you're going to get no way. that level right. of. Um, yeah. So it is. It is a. Uh, it's a changing world. We should uh, <laughs> talk about that as well. We should. That's. I'm going to write. I that think down you should just cancel all the rest of your podcasts, and we should just do like talk a for six four hours part series. Um, so because look, I, I eventually want to talk about um, a little more about what you could do sure. online with your research and everything, but we should get into that. Yeah. Well, let me let me finish this one thing. So, okay. so the idea is that I so I wasn't I was 34 once I got my kind of first real job as a postdoc, like enough money that I could live like mm-hmm. like decently. Um, and then it wasn't until I was no, I was 32, 34. Then I got the job here at CU, which is like a big boy job. And I've had to train myself to spend money because right. I, had, I had learned, I had become so good at being, at living on $13,000 a year. Oh, I see. That I had learned so you weren't skills. in like a tremendous amount of debt though. No, 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 no. Okay. I did, a, because I was the way I was, like I just, like I paid off my undergraduate loans in like three years. Then I went off to graduate school debt free. I didn't have much money, but I also lived in Columbus, Ohio, and just lived incredibly um, simply. And but then what happens? You learn those set of skills, and then once you have money, uh, you know, it's like I had to retrain myself. I mean, it helps that I'm studying how people make decisions about money and about their emotions and so on. But I definitely had to learn a sort of new set of values to be able to enjoy my life more. Yeah. So you were like, I I need a house that's just nice enough. To bring a lady back to, but not too crazy. 
that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been studying a lot of behavioral economics, in, in case you can't tell. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so you you started thinking about why are, why are people laughing at these moral um, decisions? Yes, is what led you into what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I was presenting a lot, a lot like the trolley problem. I was presenting these sort of moral dilemmas to people in, in these talks, and and I was getting laughs. And I was picking moral dilemmas that I knew were entertaining, but I didn't at the same time recognize the the inconsistency between what I was saying and what I was getting. So I was saying that moral violations cause anger and disgust, and uh, they're really uncomfortable, and all these things, and. And yet people are laughing. They're expressing their amusement and positive emotions. And fortunately, uh, in a talk at Tulane University, uh, one of the faculty members, she raised her hand in the middle of my talk and, and essentially pointed out this, this inconsistency and said, well, why are we laughing? If, if these things are supposed to be causing anger, why are we laughing? And I, I was completely dumbfounded by this. And I, I couldn't shake it. Like I, I came back home and was immediately started obsessing about the question. Um, and so what did you eventually just, I mean, this sent you on quite a path. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it's, With, I mean, it's totally changed my life. Yeah. I mean, it's, if I knew and it's the taken name. you around the world and, um, I mean, I, I've read your book humor code, I think, um, twice now and, and, um, everyone should check it out. It's like a describe, Describe your book. It's you know it's not the kind of typical pop science book. It's it's more like a travelogue. So it's it's like sort of part memoir, part travelogue, part science. You know, pop science book. Um, I I team up with a journalist and we we travel the world trying to understand what makes things funny. So I'm doing experiments back in the lab in the humor research lab, but then also sort of subjecting these ideas to kind of scrutiny out in the real world. So like. We went to the West Bank to look at, can you find humor in places that you don't expect it, in dark places? We went to the Amazon with Patch Adams and 100 hospital clowns to look at the question, is laughter really the best medicine? And we went to Japan, for instance, to, to try to understand individual and cultural differences, just to figure out this kind of crazy form of Japanese comedy that's so perplexing to Americans. Everything's backwards in Japan, it seems like. I, I'm going to be talking with... Um... June Gruber later today, and then the podcast will go out a week from the time people are hearing this. And I was just, uh, she has a course on emotions, and I'll probably talk to her about this, but the way the Japanese show and express emotions, Mm -hmm. even though they're like reporting and like feeling the same, you can elicit the same emotion, but the way that they're displaying it and what it's like, it's insane to me. It's really, it took a little while because, um, you know, we basically showed up in Osaka and we're like, okay, let's find some funny stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, and you don't find people laughing and telling jokes you know, out on the street, in the subways, in their place of business. And this is a place they pride themselves a great deal. Osaka's the funniest city in Japan, by far. Like, everybody knows it. They're like, oh, you have to go to Osaka if you're interested in comedy. And uh, this is how, this is how um, striking it is. We, we were in this, um, we, we were in this, it's called the Society for Laughter and Humor Studies. So, so the Japanese actually study humor. They're actually 
probably after the United States and, and Northern Europe is probably the greatest concentration of humor scholars in the world. And I was talking to the director of the society and I made a joke. And of course, because I think I'm funny, I started laughing at my own joke and he chastised me. He said, he said, this is a serious place. This is not a place uh, for jokes. And I said, what are you talking about? This is the society for laughter and humor studies. So, so the norm is that you, that, that you have the, this very compartmentalized view of where it's okay to express emotions and not. And, and the workplace is not one of those places, even if it's a workplace that's designed to study that particular emotion. That is amazing. It was, ama- it was an amazing moment. I mean, I, I have a lot of stuff in, in my act now and talking about because I did a lot of blue-collar jobs and everything else. And um, I would think if you're like working on a rice paddy or doing whatever else, you would want to have a laugh or two to get you through the day. But that's just not... It's just not the, it's just not the time or, nor place. Um, but if you, you know, if you go out to a bar, you go to a karaoke club, you're, you know, you're invited to dinner. Now, all of a sudden, the... the um, you're in a different compartment, and it's okay to do it. And the Japanese are really funny people. Like, they're really, really funny people, and they have a great sense of humor and so on. And so it seems like... It is funny that, to, like, picture these very, like, you're in this workplace, very stoic, and and then and very serious, and you're walking, and then you get to the bar next door after work, and all of a sudden you're shooting confetti out of your... <laughs> Water, whatever, funny. I imagine Japanese humor is like a very wacky, crazy thing in my mind, only because I've seen weird internet um, Japanese game shows. The shows are like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are, um, so what we found was that the shows are especially crazy because the contestants are typically comedians. And so um, so the the game shows are even farther over the top than you would expect because it's just all comedians trying to get famous. A lot of it looks very like it would be illegal. The <laughs> <laughs> painful it's they're definitely painful those shows. Um so I I I skipped around a, a little um bit because my brain doesn't work in a very linear fashion. But when you first started looking into um humor and humor research, what did you find before you for all the before you launched made this your entire life like like the very the very first little bits yes, of it. so it started small um so it actually started with like i'm not proud to say this but it started with like some google searching um i don't know what i mean i know you're not supposed to like use google and wikipedia and all of that but as someone that ha- i do a fair amount of research for my jokes and it's i mean it's pretty amazing it's amazing and I'm and I'm glad I did because, um, well, so so two things notable things happened around that time. The first was that I I just got on the Google and started typing in what makes things funny. Um, I, and not to distract sure. too much, but had, did you ever have? I have a lot of wonderful moments where when what I'm after in Google and what Google gives me. <laughs> Yeah, are two very different things. I don't know if you have anything off the top. Of uh, I don't know if I have anything. But you know, so the thing about Google that's sort of that makes me glad I have tenure is that if anybody ever um, 
had a subpoena for my Google <laughs> search terms. Like the things that I search in the name of science. Yeah, yeah. It like I would I have to say like I'm doing this for science. Right. Like I just I just did a I just did a thing about jokes about racist jokes. Yeah, yeah. So you I, were asking me for I was, racist jokes, and I had to pretend I didn't know any. <laughs> well, it was jokes about racist jokes. So right. it's like this meta joke thing. But Google's not very good at picking up like a that kind of a search. So I just got a lot of horrible racist jokes, uh, you know, in, yeah, yeah. In, you know, now in my cache in my computer. I had um, years ago when I was research, I was trying to write some jokes based on Marty Hazelton, my first guest's research, and uh, with um, ovulation and women becoming more uh, horny during the fertile time and all of that. And I was I was thinking to myself that it would be good to have like a calendar and know you know when your lady is going to be hornier. And I I thought that would make I was wondering if there's like an app out there. And uh, what I googled, oh no, was this is this is going to be mind blowingly stupid uh, to everyone listening. This is actually what I googled, and this is and that that's what I was after. And I googled penis calendar. <laughs> which just brought up calendars with penises all over. You can buy a calendar with like 12 penises. You, cer- you certainly can. I was hoping there was like some sort of app where you could like track your sex life or something. And I just got, ca- which is exactly what, if I wouldn't have set that up with what I was looking for, yeah. and I were to ask you what would happen if I Googled penis calendar, you'd be like, oh, the calendar is full of penises. Yes, right. Of well, if you ever become a prop comic, I, I know what one of your first props would be. The penis calendar? Yeah, of course. Oh, well, I did think about, I, I thought about... <laughs> I thought about maybe I would make like a penis calendar and sell it after show, like dress my penis up in various costumes. You're a humor researcher. You should appreciate this. Um, uh, and, you know, like Santa Claus for December oh, yeah, and stuff right. like that. Yeah, it's like a, a ghost and for October. <laughs> right, right, and right. The a bunny in March yeah, yeah. or April, right? I see. Uh, you right. could sell that after a show easily. Put a, put some like swim trunks on it in July. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See? See how much fun these ideas are? See, you are a humor expert. You're cranking them out. It's like, you know, a leprechaun for St. Patrick's Day and all that. And, and like, I would love to meet your tailor. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so I, very small so I googled. So then I googled. This is all in like a fifteen-minute span. Then I googled um, penis costume, <laughs> and what I got were costumes to make yourself of a course, penis, right, an right. enormous penis. And that then, you and then there's a couple. Yourself. There's a couple's costume that you can get also for <laughs> oh, your <really>? girlfriend. <laughs> Which is, makes her a large vagina. Right. So the, the point is, is Google doesn't have everything figured out just yet. It, yes, but, that's um, right. It is an incredible resource. So you just started Googling. I started Googling this stuff. And what I found was, and, and unbeknownst to me at the time, I found like a critical piece of the puzzle very early on. Um, this, uh, this paper by Tom Beach. So Tom's a, a, ling- a, a linguist. He he's not an academia anymore, but he was he wrote this paper when he was like a visiting scholar at Stanford. He's a very smart guy. 
and and he was just puzzling over what makes things funny and he came up with i think well to me really is the bones of of the theory that we that we use in in the humor research lab and uh and this is this is really an incredible thing that veach did because people have been trying to answer this question for 2500 years so plato and aristotle have written about it um Thomas Hobbes, Immanuel Kant. Is everything right? Yeah. Um, Sigmund Freud. Sorry, I was just, I had a weird look on my face as I was adjusting (laughs) levels on my headphones and I scared Peter into thinking we lost everything. Yes, all the brilliance was gone. (laughs) Um, To start all over again. (laughs) We we should anyway. Um, Go on. Uh, So, so, but what, when I was reading these other theories, as a psychologist, as someone who had been studying emotion for, at that point, more than 10 years, um, all those other theories, even though they were much more widely accepted, uh, just didn't make sense from a psychological standpoint. But what Veach was, do, was doing, although it was, it was written in sort of linguistic terms, m- made a lot of sense. And so, so, that, so finding that paper you know, through the sort of just luck. I wouldn't have found it through other types of searches, I suspect. And, um, and then the second thing was I had had a graduate student who had sat in on my course, and uh, I was so impressed by him that I had talked to him about his career and research and what he was doing and, and, and everything. And uh, we had never sort of settled on a topic. I wasn't planning on working with him necessarily, and I, I, I essentially called him into my office one day and I said, we should, we should work on this. This is a really important idea. And so we started writing a paper about what makes moral violations funny. So we started very small, like essentially trying to answer the question, why do people laugh at moral violations? Mm-hmm. And we, we started to use this paper by Veach um, and then very quickly started to make our own changes to it and started testing a bunch of ideas and, and very quickly ended up writing, I think, one of the best papers I've ever written. And, and that, uh, that really got the ball rolling. Um, so it, it, when you talk about that, I, I mean, a thing that comes to my mind, which might conflict with um, you know, some of what you were going for, is that... Um, is that there is a close connection, but laughter and humor aren't always the same thing. And a lot of times we laugh at things that aren't funny and it's this kind of social lubricant. And mm-hmm. I, I, I have a friend who I, I talk to him on the phone and every time, I mean, I could record it, it's very predictable when you know we're just having a regular conversation and then uh, it's time to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And he always laughs. Okay. When we say goodbye, it's just like a habit yes. that he has. He doesn't. And, he may not even know he's doing it. Right. And I have. Um, and I think I've told you this before. Um, uh, like my my grandma, when she ha- has to tell the news that you know one of her friends died or something recently, mm-hmm. something um, tragic happened. She always has like this nervous laughter that mm-hmm. is always comes along with um with this news and obviously that's a very different that's not humor that's um laughter is just kind of um this uh tension release sort of yeah so this is the i mean so so you know when 
when you start studying something like this, you have to like, I mean, it, it's just an amazing time suck because you have to just figure everything out. Um, so one of the things that we had to do was define humor. And, uh, and that's a problem because humor has two meanings in the literature. Uh, the first meaning is humor as a stimulus, you know, so um, like a type of comedy or, I, you know, a joke, people say, like, they'll, they'll refer to humor in that kind of way. The other way, in this way that we use it in the lab, is humor as a response, as a psychological experience and a response. So I like to think of there's a humor attempt and then there's a potentially humorous response to that attempt. So, um, and yeah, that's as a comedian, you're, I'm very familiar with the difference <laughs> between the yes. attempt at humor and the reaction that I might, um, receive. I, I learned a lot of lessons about that on a nightly basis. And it's, and what's difficult about it is that, that the reaction, that a failed humor attempt can have one of two reactions. It can, it can create a sort of boring, pallid emotional response, yawn, or it can create a arousing negative response, offense, right? The people are upset mm. there, which... Um, you do a joke about farting and someone goes, my grandmother died of farting or something. <laughs> that you, yeah, that you have, so, that, so that trying to be funny, trying to be humorous, let's say, um, is really difficult because you can fail in these two ways. You're trying to find this sort of sweet spot between the two. So the way we define humor is that it has three elements to it. Um, that it has a cognitive response, a judgment. Hey, that's funny. Shane's farting joke was funny. It has an emotional element to it, amusement, this delightful feeling that we have, and a um, perhaps a behavioral response laughter um, but what you rightfully point out is that laughter is an imperfect indicator that someone's amused and thinks something's funny also um i mean the opposite point which is um kind of i guess i don't know if i should say the exception that proves the rule but um as a comedian we watch lots and lots of comedy and often a comedian a comedian's response to something that we find humorous and pleasurable mm -hmm. is going huh, huh that's yes good. That's, that's right funny. that's clever <laughs> we don't actually laugh out loud and uh, yeah it's a little more heavily focused on the kind of cognitive side of it the sort of appreciating what right. goes into it all and i i find myself have turned into that person yeah. a little bit how much comedy do you watch would you say um in a given week-ish? Mm, not as much as you'd think. Yeah, yeah I don't... An hour? <laughs> I hours? mean, besides the Shane, I, the Shane Moss comedy that I watch I, on a weekly basis. Over and over. <laughs> oh, you poor soul. Uh, yeah, you know, I, well, to me, it's, I'm not... Well, so one of the things I, I have made sure to do is not make this just about stand-up. Right. So there's a tendency for folks to think about stand-up because it... In some ways, it's kind of the purest um, way to produce comedy. You know, stand a on a stage in a microphone. Yeah, that's right. But I, I, you know, I spend more time kind of like looking at funny things on Reddit than I do watching stand-up comedy in a in a given week. 
I've never been on Reddit. Everyone tells me to go on Reddit. It's the thing to do. Huh? I'm amazed that you're not on Reddit. I know. I'm a bad person. That's what everyone says I'm supposed to be on. I mean, it's like, it's just, do I need another thing? I know. I understand. It's like there's just always another thing. I ask my manager for advice on my career, and I'll be like, you get on Vine yet? <laughs> like, oh that God. is terrible. That's not a good idea. Uh, advice. For you, it's not a good idea. Right. But... Yeah, I get it. I understand. The question, I think the question for a, for a um, professional like you is how much should you be consuming and how much should you be creating? Mm. And I think you should only be consuming enough that it facilitates the creation process. And so maybe Reddit's not the best place for you. I mean, if you're, if you're listening to, you know, maybe online courses, if, you know, if you're, if you're doing online courses and reading these books, Given the the work that you're doing, like that's probably better than being on Reddit, you know, right. in that sense. But there's a lot of comedy on Reddit. But Reddit might be better than the amount of time that I spend on Facebook and Twitter. I could maybe take some of that time, spend it on Reddit instead. Yeah, or even yeah, just check the just check the top. There's like a list that comes up, that bubbles up. That's like the best stuff. Yeah, because there's like evolution sections and like yeah, there's all these subreddits that that. There's a comedy subreddit. There's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of these things. I mean, I, I get it. I understand. I'm super not hip. Yeah. <laughs> I, the 44-year-old is teaching you about Reddit. So you go on Reddit a lot to study humor, just to see what... Just to see what's up, like what's going on. I mean, so I basically like look at the New York Times, look at Slate, and look at Reddit every morning. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of my job. <laughs> that's like my thing like just that's just enough i know what are the what are the big stories what's sort of happening what's the playful stuff that's happening in the world and so um i don't i wouldn't i don't do much beyond what that. are the real big memes that hit the internet today it's true what do they mean to society yeah there's a lot of i mean because what happens is the page i look at at reddit is just the it's the stuff that bubbles up from all the subreddits so it's often very diverse in terms of there's like touch heart heartwarming touching stories there's like hilarious photos there's videos of like you know police beating people up like there's just it's just a snapshot into a world that when you live in boulder you don't normally get to see right kind of thing um oh because so this idea of, of what humor is so this yeah so so you're right about laughter like you have some conscious control over laughter so um you could fake a laugh uh, you, have, <laughs> you can you can stifle a laugh, right? So you 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 don't want people to know that you think that this offensive joke is funny. You know, um, I I do that a lot with um, just I, I was thinking about this recently be, because we live in a society that's all about like you should be positive and happy all the time, and but it it occurred to me that when someone actually is super happy, you get a lot of odd looks. Like if you just lose yourself in a car or whatever, like like singing along to a song, people uh-huh. are like, what's wrong with that guy enjoying himself all by himself? And I find that a lot of times I'll just be in a restaurant writing jokes <laughs> or whatever, and all of a sudden I'll be, and I'm suppressing that laughter because I don't. people will think I'm a lunatic. And, and sometimes I just burst out laughing. I'm just... And sometimes I'm not even, I don't even have a notepad or anything in front of me. I'm just sitting there in public and I just start bursting out laughing and it's embarrassing. 
So you, so you try to hold it back. So I, yeah, yeah. So I suppress that laughter. But what's interesting is that although laughter is this imperfect indicator of of a humorous response, it I I've come to believe, and and Caleb has really helped with this a lot. I mean, get, recruiting Caleb was huge because he um, I mean, he's just really smart and he um, and incredibly hardworking, and and it's a nice like you you and your podcast you know, you're going to be talking to a lot of very smart people and accomplished people. But what, what doesn't happen, what you don't see in these, in these interactions is the critical role that other people play in the success of that, of that person, whether it be mentors or collaborators or students, you know. Um, well, that's a big part of why I'm doing this too is because there's a lot of things that I just can't figure out on my own mm-hmm. or it takes me just lots and lots of time. So it's like, oh, here's a way that I can trick smart people into giving <laughs> me the answers to these many problems that I'm finding in life. Yeah, because they wouldn't otherwise. <laughs> right. <laughs> they wouldn't, if you send them an email, they would be like, uh, no, I'm not writing 500-word response. Right, right, email. right. But uh, but so it, it was it was Caleb who really started has been honing in on this idea that, and uh, um, he's the one that put me in touch with you. Now that you say his name, it's familiar. Oh, is that right? Okay, mm-hmm. oh, that makes sense. Um, he, so so the idea is this is that that if you think about if you want to understand emotion, one of the ways that you can try to help understand emotion is to find it in other animals. So, so can you find it in, in non-human primates, for instance? I'm happy you're talking about this because it was going to be like one of my next questions. Oh, good. So. So, so, and I had never thought that way, right? So I, I had been studying things like regret and moral violations and so on. And occasionally I'd come across, um, you know, a, a biology paper, um, um, some, some, something from another field, but but I think it ends up being critical if you want to understand humor because, um, so if you think about it, laughter is, is a communication tool, right? There's a reason that, that, that um, we have this vocalization. And, um, and so this vocalization has to signal something. And right. Otherwise, like in a lot of uh, an evolutionary pastor for a lot of species, a vocalization is something that is putting you in danger from another predator. So there's always a cost to something like that. If, if you're just laughing all day and you're a rat, uh, which rats do laugh, which a lot of people may not know. They don't know. And I actually think that, the, that you even, this rat, this, this tickling rat do you, do work is mind-blowingly uh, interesting and actually a critical element like now more than ever i believe that that the so 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 you look for it in monkeys or bonobos or chimps and so on because they're sort of closely related to us and then and you say well okay well but they're not as sort of cognitively sophisticated so you're just looking for these very basic conditions and um but the fact is you can find it in rats also and what i'm saying with cost is if you're just a rat just having a big laugh all day long and the cat hears you laughing you're dead so there is a cost to this laughter so this signal must have some sort of benefit yes it has to it has to have a benefit so so let's talk about this this tickling rat thing so so this um these researchers at washington state this guy um panskeep is that how it's pronounced Panksy. I just heard his name like 
yesterday. I know that's I, terrible. I, I apologize. But um, I'll, Pangsip, I'll, I'll add it into the um, the website and I'll put that information. Okay. Yeah. He is. Uh, there's there's a really good video I can I can give you on this. Mm -hmm. They started tickling these rats, sort of like roughhousing these rats, and um, and what they found was that if you if you hone in on the right frequency, you can pick up these chirps. People debate whether it's laughter or not. I, I don't care whether you call it laughter or something else, but it it signals positive emotion. And um, and if you think about it, well, okay, um, what. What happens is positive emotion occurs in situations that are kind of safe or playful or what we say are benign, um, which, which relates to what you were just saying. Like a situation must be safe if you're going to experience positive emotion or at least typically safe if you're going to experience positive emotion. But what's interesting is that, that laughter is unique to a particular form of positive emotion, amusement. And so you don't laugh when you feel proud. You don't laugh when you experience embarrassment. You, you don't even really laugh when you experience joy. Laughter is limited to this delightful, amusing kind of mood experience that people have or that rats can have. And so, yeah, if you're a rat, you don't laugh while the cat's chasing you. But after you got away, maybe you have a laugh. <laughs> of, uh, I, ooh, that was a close call, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So this, so this idea. So then, what happens is you're like, okay, well, laughter occurs um, when a situation is benign, but only a particular situation. What is it that's unique about that situation that would induce laughter, and not pride or not? happiness or whatever it may be and 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 what we find and this is what Veach started to to identify is that that situation is also threatening unsettling or amiss in some way there's some there's something wrong there or what we could say there's a violation and so it's um the precursors of humor are what we call benign violations or situations that are wrong yet okay so in the case of, a, of tickling a rat or roughhousing with a rat is that these are sort of gentle nudges and sort of friendly, playful gestures. And the rat knows that he or she is safe because there's familiar, familiarity with these researchers and the attacks aren't too harmful. And so it's this sort but of... But you're still in this kind of vulnerable position. Exactly. And, and um, this is arousing, but in a positive way. And the chirping or the laughter indicates that this situation is, is wrong yet okay. And what happens, though, is that that's at its most very basic form. In humans, you see this with tickling. You see this with play fighting. You see this with reactions to slapstick. So in slapstick, someone's appears to be harmed but is not harmed the situation is wrong yet okay or the person is being harmed but they deserve it right and so that helps make it okay and we we delight in those kinds of situations what ends up happening though is that as as humans developed um the things that could go wrong the violations in the world expanded greatly so now they become um Violations of logical norms, and so then we laugh at absurdities. Um, violations of linguistic norms, so we laugh at wordplay and puns. Um, 
violations of social norms. So, so we laugh when, you know, a little baby farts at the dinner table. Um, uh, we laugh at cultural violations of cultural norms when things go amiss when it comes to, to people from different places coming together and so on and so forth. I mean, it really is amazing that as, as hum- if you think about where instincts come from um, and how a lot of those instincts are the same instincts that we have in every, all of this other kind of higher processes were kind of built on top of that already existing um, instincts that were there. So, so now you're um, uh, all of a sudden able to laugh or feel stressed about what might happen 40 years from now right. in your life that we never had to worry about that before. You know? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it is sort of, it's a blessing and a curse, you know, and so, um, so we, you know, we basically, we interviewed these people for the humor code about like, um, we met, we met this guy, Mark, we met this guy, Mark Beckoff, Mark Beckoff does research on animal emotions and, and we're like, can do dogs have a sense of humor? And he's like, yeah, of course they do. You know, that they can, they can experience play. And because they can experience play, they basically can experience benign violations. And, um, and if you think about it, like a dog's life is a simple life. As a human, you have many more things that you can experience humor about, not just physical, playful kinds of things. Um, you know, the world of things that are on Reddit and the things that come out of stand-up comics mouths and the New Yorker cartoons and, and so on and so forth. Um, but yet the things that can go wrong when it comes to comedy also greatly expand. And so anytime you try to be funny, you also risk upsetting people. So you, you try to unite people through comedy, but you might end up dividing them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in that way, like the, it's a really complex kind of mysterious thing, and interestingly, it's one that people don't normally think about. Even emotion researchers like myself, it it took this this sort of magical moment for me to to sort of understand this question, and then and then be so perplexed by it that I like set aside a whole area of of my research to to do it. Right. So so in much the same way that you feel like. Um, learning about behavioral economics has helped you manage your finances as you came into more money. You um, also feel like studying humor has made you funnier, or do you feel like it's given you more of an appreciation, or how do you think it's shaped your um, personal life? Yeah, so I um, I've always I've always valued. Comedy, like I always You're a good laugh. Of- That's why I hang around. You laugh at all my jokes. Half of them I know aren't that funny. I, I definitely like. I've, I've kind of, um, like I don't want to paint a picture of like some, like I was like some sad sack kid. Like I always kind of, I was sort of still like. I think that generally I have like an optimistic, cheerful disposition, and, I um, and uh, I think so. I was a little bit of a class clown in high school, not full on, but a little bit, and. I've always been like the professor who tells a lot of jokes in class and so on. And uh, I think that it hasn't, I don't think it's like has made me like directly more f- funny, but it certainly, I just pay attention to that, to the world a little bit more. Like I have a greater appreciation for, for comedy as an art form, I think. Um, I, I did, I was faced with 
with a, a dilemma in the humor code. So, so the, the inciting incident for the humor code was me in a moment of hubris getting up on stage at an open mic night and, and telling jokes and sort of uh, for this journalist, for Joel Warner, he, he invited me to open mic night and wanted me to critique the comedians. And I said, why not? Why don't I tell some jokes? And so I wrote some jokes in like 24 hours and then got up on stage and not the best approach if you're a start, if you're an aspiring stand-up comedian and you've been dreaming about this for your whole life and you're like this is it tomorrow I'm going to do it and you haven't taken a second to write any jokes um uh, you, you might need a little more than 24 hours. Oh yeah it was it was a, it was a ter- well you know I mean this is this is life right it was a terrible decision if you want to judge it as in terms of my performance uh, how on stage successful the actual performance was But it was life changing because it 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 launched the humor code project it it made me realize that you need to test these ideas outside the lab and so when I invited Joel to say, hey, let's go do this, he said, sure, I'll do it, but, but under one condition, that when we're finished, you get on stage again and prove that we've learned something. And this time at a professional comedy club. So like, let's raise the stakes and so on. And so that, um, that, that night went a lot better, as you might imagine. Um, and so in that way, yeah, I guess I have become funnier because like, at least I know now if I wanted to try to be a stand-up comedian i know how i would go about doing it it wouldn't i understand the behind, behind the scenes stuff and i have some idea of how i would go about writing jokes and and do you feel like you could take a person with with maybe some um raw materials that might uh someone someone that might have like a good delivery or something like that and perhaps a little potential and you feel like you could um help them uh, craft an act like you could go out to an open mic find some people doing it for their first or you know 10th time or whatever yes yeah i do believe that actually people hate to hear that but but that's where that's where we're headed right in the in the humor research lab so i've kind of envisioned this as a 12-year project where the first six years which is sort of has come to a completion is is cracking the humor code, is understanding what makes things funny. The next six years are going to be, can you, can you make the world a funnier place, a more humorous place? So that is, can you enhance people's sense of humor? Um, this could be professionals, um, or it could be like the everyday person on the street, where you're either trying to get them to experience humor more often, more easily, or you're getting them to to actually be better at producing humor in others. And, and so that's what we're working on right now. What is the best way to get people to, um, to try more and to succeed more? Right. Um, I mean, I see that a lot when I'm just at an open mic or, or, or I'll see like one of my support acts who has just this natural mm. um, kind of... Uh, personality to that that is so funny and i mean this is what i attach to because i'm pretty good at writing jokes is Mm -hmm. is more my specialty and and so i'll i'll often see people that are lacking in that 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 are really have great delivery and and they're kind of getting by with just this likability stuff that i hope to have in a couple decades or so one day maybe 
Um, and uh, I'll be like, man, if I could just write jokes for this guy, like he has no idea what he has, and um, and probably will never will never figure out what he's doing wrong because he's getting by just on this on this charming delivery or whatever. Yeah, I actually had this conversation with uh, this when we, when we first started. I was talking about giving unsolicited advice, but I I met a, a comedian down in Denver and. Uh, I was like, oh, wow, she has it. Like, she has this great stage presence. And, but her jokes, they're average. You know, like, there's nothing special about them. And uh, I was like, just, you need to write more. Like, if you can come up with better material with your stage presence, like, you can go places. Um, and I and think then she kicked you in the ball. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, it's one of those things. Like, I, I mean, she's, I, I like her and, and I'd love to see her succeed. And sometimes it takes, you know, a little bit of that. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure I, I should be doing this stuff anymore. But I, I mean, I really do want to, to test these ideas. How about I, I give you, uh, I'll give you a case study of my own. Okay. Um, uh, and I think this will, will probably illustrate um, what you do quite well. Um, so something that I'm struggling with and kind of figuring out um was so for listeners that haven't this is their first podcast that they're listening to i broke my feet um a few months ago and i was out of commission for a few months um living in my parents basement his foot is really gross right now yeah yeah. i can see it under the table here i had to change my bandages (laughs) this morning and the bathroom door was open and peter almost saw the enormous hole in my foot from the surgery that's still there and like pussing weird stuff um <laughs> frothing i think frothing yeah um and, uh, uh, uh thanks for the inside jokes on the, on the podcast so um we're not getting into frothing now, now 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 people are going to think frothing is a weird sex act that we um that we that's where i went in my mind so here's the um uh, here's the dilemma. So now I'm back. I'm just starting to get into stand up again, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, a little rusty. So maybe my delivery's not quite what it was before. Or, or I'm also performing for the first time sitting down. Maybe I haven't totally figured that out. Although I think my delivery and performance is as good as it's ever been right now. Um, here's the here's the problem: is that I'm trying to talk about and do some jokes about um you know going through breaking my feet and i'm going up there and i'm still on crutches and everything and oftentimes um an audience isn't sure if they can laugh Mm -hmm. at at this um material so yeah so uh well my mind immediately goes back to the theory right so why i Thought it set up your um, yeah, so, nine violation pretty nicely. So this um, you are you've become a good interviewer in yeah, three podcasts. I know. That's <laughs> really good. This is good. This went well. This is entertaining. I listen to this. I I have five people who would listen to this. <laughs> uh, so so to me the the the, the theories. So if we want to get sciency for a moment, um, if you think like what I do day in and day out is um, I try to answer, uh, I try to come up with what I call an original solution to an important puzzle. 
So any paper I write tries to do that. And so if you think about this, um, uh, you could, as an academic, you know, so, you, so the, my, you know, the puzzle that I first stumbled across with the humor stuff and that Caleb and I wrote this paper about was why do people laugh at moral violations? Well, that's an important puzzle on a number, a number of reasons. And um, uh, like, so for instance, you know, this idea that like when, when one person is outraged and another person is laughing, that, that can cause a great deal of um, conflict. Another reason it's an important puzzle is because the existing theories didn't always do a good job of explaining it, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, but what you do as an academic is that you have some hunch, a hypothesis as to, to what is the solution to this puzzle, and, um, and that hunch is going to be better and more believable if there's some theoretical basis for it. And so theories are useful because they allow you to make predictions that you otherwise couldn't. And then, but that of course is not enough because this is not philosophy. Psychology is that you need to then craft experiments and test those. those. One of the things that I really have, that I like about stand-up comedians is that although they kind of are atheoretical, they really do believe in testing ideas. So they have hunches. They don't have theories, but they have hunches, and they test these hunches over and over again. We're very, very much Thomas Edison of, of uh, comedy, and, and it's it's why it takes so long to to come up with the light bulb. Exactly. So in in your case, like the theory that I want to draw on is this idea that that people are going to laugh to the degree that you can create a situation that's simultaneously wrong yet okay. And, and breaking your, your heels and having like all the horrible things that are going on with your foot is very wrong and it's upsetting and it's, it's a mess and it's all these kinds of things. You're tasked with finding a way to make it okay yeah. in some way. And when you're on the crutches, so one way to help make things okay is for it to be distant, to be in the rearview mirror, for you telling this story now as a full able-bodied person exactly but if you're not how is it that you go about doing this i i even one of my solutions to that is i actually even say now this some of this stuff will be a lot funnier when i'm not on crutches anymore (laughs) yeah so i think um so the the most striking example of this is uh tignataro has this like instant classic stand-up set that she did when she was diagnosed with breast cancer so she basically threw out all of her material and was talking about being diagnosed with breast cancer and the challenges that she was having with family and relationships and all this kind of stuff. And what Tig did, I don't even know if she knew that she was doing it, if it was part of her plan, but she kept assuring the audience that this is going to be okay. This is okay. This is okay. And she kept saying that over and over again. And, and if the person who's like suffering from the situation is saying it's okay, then it allowed the audience like a lot more license to see the jokes that she was saying is funny. And so maybe the way to, to do it is in your own way, figure out like, even if it's a matter of saying, you know, so my doctor has told me that I'm, ma- I'm going to make a full recovery and I'm going to be able to run and jump with all the other uh, yeah, rabbits started and so on. Things. Along that and way. I think that that ends up that'll end up going going a long way in terms of having the audience able to laugh. I mean, because they're laughing at you, right? 
And and that's easy to do if the thing that they're laughing at you doesn't matter that much, whether you dress funny or you have a bad haircut or something like that. Um, and and I think some of it is that if you can communicate to them also that you're okay with it, that in some ways even this is one of the best things that has ever happened to you, then all of a sudden now you're going to have a lot of license. You're like, right. I'm so glad. You can imagine you know, starting off as like, so I had this horrible thing happen to me, and I'm so glad that it did. Yeah. Like a line like that um, can go a long way. So, so um, you know, you were, you were talking about like writing jokes versus performing jokes. I've been, I've been watching um, some of Louis C.K.'s stuff again recently. And I've been doing it because um, Louis C.K. hates the benign violation theory. Yeah. Like he just pooped on the idea uh, when I told him about it. Well, in, in, in the book, it makes it seem like he didn't have a whole lot of time and he was kind of backstage. and like Yeah, there may be some situational factors there, but he, he really didn't. He quickly dismissed the idea that, that you can do this. But um, and, and, you know, you don't need a theory to be a good comedian. But one of the things that, that um, is interesting is that Louis C.K. and other types of, of stand-ups play on, on really big violations. They talk about taboo subjects. If you watch very closely what Louis C.K. is doing and you realize that it's theater, that he's saying the same thing night in and night out, but he's just making it seem like it's coming off the top of his head, he will often gesture and make these facial expressions and spend a long time kind of qualifying what he's about to say. So he make these, these facial like it pains him to say this thing. Um, and he'll have this like body language where he's kind of like hunched over, like, I can't believe I'm actually saying this. Right. And he'll sort of spend a lot of time finding ways to make it okay right. to say these kinds of things. As opposed to someone else who might do jokes about cookies, something very benign, and, and be like, What's wrong with these cookie makers? <laughs> and they're always crumbling and finding the violation. In a- finding a way to pump up and make it more arousing. He's instead of trying to bring it down to make it less arousing to get that sweet spot between being too much of a violation. Which then there's a sliding scale for everyone and that's very subjective. Yes. What is a violation and what is not. Yes. Um, we need to start wrapping up here in, um, in a couple minutes. Um, Number one, don't want to forget, uh, Charity of the Week. You have a charity in mind that you want to endorse? I do. It's uh, go to cancerresearch.org. That is, uh, they, they, from the name, as you can tell, do research on cancer. So I, I lost my father uh, to um, lymphoma, lymphoma, lung, and liver cancer, hence supporting cancer research. It's also, yeah. I have a hunch that's how I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. I think so, that's what's going to... So it's self-interest uh, yeah, also. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone will, if, if something doesn't get us first, everyone will... It's going to... I'm, I'm an, opti- you, I'm an if optimist. If you look to be 120, you'll get cancer at yeah. some point. So it's obviously an important thing. My grandma's going through all sorts of things. Uh, it's, ter- it's just so it's terrible. It's the worst thing. It's the worst thing. It's really, really bad. But I am an optimist. The believing you'll get cancer is sort of being an optimist. 
Um, I also like that you had to, you still felt the need to point. You're like cancer research, uh, or so what they research <laughs> is how to cure cancer, yeah. and and that's how you make a dark subject funny like that by pointing out this um, uh, this error that that um, uh, the what made it benign was that he felt the need to point out that they were researching cancer when their name is uh, cancer research and uh check out uh, peter's so so go there um donate feel good about yourself my my i do this because my hunch is is that people would be much more willing to be inspired and go and donate 20 bucks to a research organization than to give me a dollar or whatever it might whatever comics are begging for for a podcast and and um and then we can all feel much better about ourselves uh so so go there and and um and do that and um and then check out peter's book humor code and um check him out on uh, what are all of the the many twitter handles well just two right well yeah we've got so i'm at peter mcgraw and then we have at humor code we have some other we, we actually have a Twitter handle for the lab at humor research, not terribly active. So it's okay to skip that one. I would say. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, do you have a website or anything else? Humorcode.com, petermcgraw.org. I, I, I have a little too much going on, but I'm not on vine. Uh, okay. uh, but you are on Reddit. Um, thank you so much for letting me, um, stay at your home, even though you made me, um, let you be a guest on my amazing, <laughs> super popular podcast that every scientist is begging and clawing at one another to get on. Um, but I, I, it was an equal trade for uh, a decent night's sleep in, in your lovely home in Boulder. Thank you, Peter, for being my friend and for being on my podcast. Next week on the program, I am back in Cleveland uh, to talk about zebra mussels and flies. Um, I've, I've been meaning to dive more into non-human um, behavior. So this is, a, this is a good start into that. And we learn about a bit about the ecosystem. And it's fun. Um, I was a little nervous at first when I was like, I don't know if I can talk to a person about zebra mussels for an hour. Um, and it turned out to be <laughs> a really entertaining conversation. So make sure and listen in next week as I talk we, with yes. Bob Crapes. Why are we here? Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. 
The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P in Spanish, <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. 